15. Good evening. I spent uh, the start of this month locked in my flat. Um, didn't go out, didn't have any visitors, and the reason was a trip I'd made. Uh, at the start of February, I went through Singapore, and when I got back to the UK, uh, felt a bit unwell. I had um, dry cough, sore chest, kind of classic low respiratory symptoms. And because of my travel history, uh, there was obviously a chance, probably a very small chance, that it could have been the COVID uh, coronavirus. So obviously I followed guidelines, I rang NHS uh, direct. Um, based on my symptoms and my travel, I was advised to get tested. Uh, so I arranged that test and then I self-isolated in my flat and, and waited for the results. Now, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. So my job is to study outbreaks, try and understand how things spread and how we might control them. Uh, so it's kind of surreal to suddenly be brought much closer to this virus that I'd basically spent um, the best part of, of a month working on. Fortunately, I eventually got the call and the test was negative. Um, my symptoms resolved, so I was free to go back out into the world. But I couldn't help but wonder, what if the test had come back with a different result? Um, not just for me, but the epidemiologist in me wondered, what could it have meant for transmission? What could it have potentially contributed uh, to the outbreak? There's evidence that we can occasionally see transmission happen before people have clear symptoms. So I thought of, of where I'd sat, the surfaces I'd touched, the coffees I'd bought, and, and wondered what potentially could I have been creating in terms of spread. And that raises the question, of course, of um, when we talk about diseases and we ask how much do they spread, how transmissible are they, how do we measure that, how do we put a number on how easily something spreads? Well, in my field, um, we do. We, we have a number. We call it the reproduction number, or R for short. And we use this to, to try and estimate transmission. And this number represents the average number of people uh, a typical infectious case could spread a disease to. So, for example, um, back in 2014, Ebola in West Africa, each infected case, uh, on average, was infecting two others. So you can see, on average, if we start with one case in an area, We'll have two in the next generation, then we'll have four, eight, 16, 32, and so on. It doesn't take much to spot that this gives us a very neat way of separating two very different types of contagion. If the reproduction number is above one, on average, each case will generate more infection than there was before. And we see this in the case of a reproduction number around two, this doubling effect and this exponentially growing epidemic. But if the reproduction number is below one, then if you have a group of infectious people, on average, they'll create less infection than there was before. And that group will create less infection than there was before, and so on, and you'll see an epidemic that eventually declines. So diseases that we're obviously concerned about are ones where the reproduction number is above one. And just to give you some context, um, the pandemic flu, so-called swine flu in 2009, the reproduction number was about 1.5. SARS in, uh, in 2003 had a reproduction number initially of around two or three before control measures went in. Coronavirus uh, in, in Wuhan, in Hubei, in the, the center of the outbreak in early January, had a reproduction number of about 2.5. However, we estimate, uh, estimated recently that the interventions that went in, the control measures that went in, likely reduced that to just around one. And we're seeing similarly in Singapore and Hong Kong, where there's a lot of control measures, the reproduction number isn't 
below that crucial value, but it's certainly much lower than it could be, and it's really slowed down the outbreak we're seeing. But that's putting a number on transmission, but what drives that particular number? Well, it turns out there's four things that influence the reproduction number, and really, if you understand those four things, you understand a lot about how contagion works and how we control outbreaks. And to run through them, think about a person who's infected. What dictates how much spread they create? Well, the first most obvious one is just how long are they infectious for? If you're infectious for longer, there's more opportunities potentially for the virus to spread. But then the second thing we need to consider is what people do during that period they're infectious. What are their social interactions? How many opportunities are there for the virus to, to get to other people? But then it's not just interactions, because you might have a conversation with someone and you happen to sneeze and a virus gets across, or you don't sneeze and maybe it doesn't. So we also need to consider the probability that transmission happens during each of our social interactions. And then finally, we need to think about the other person in that interaction. Maybe they're not susceptible to infection, so you might sneeze a load of virus onto them, but they don't actually get infected and ill and, and potentially transmit it to others. So these four things, the, the duration, the opportunities, the transmission probability, and the susceptibility. So I like to call these the dots for short. As these four things I mentioned, duration, opportunities, transmission probability, and susceptibility. Those are the four things that drive disease transmission. And handily, uh, if we multiply them together, uh, we get the value of the reproduction number. And so looking at this, we can very quickly spot that if we change any one of these four things, we'll increase or decrease the reproduction number. For example, if everyone in the population has, say, twice as many interactions that drive infection as they did before, that will just double the reproduction number. If you double the value of O, you double the value of R. But we can also see ways to control infection. Uh, the most, well, the ideal way of controlling infection in public health is to reduce susceptibility, because then you don't have to worry about what people are doing in terms of interactions and what might be going on with transmission. For example, if we can vaccinate enough people, get this value S low enough, the reproduction number comes below this crucial value and we don't see transmission happening. The problem though is for a lot of infections, we don't have a vaccine. So maybe we can target something else. We can target duration. If we can get people effective treatment quickly, we can reduce the period they're infectious and that way bring the disease under control. Unfortunately for coronavirus, we don't yet have a good vaccine and we don't have good ways of treating to reduce the duration of infection. So we've really got to focus on these two things in the middle. One of them is opportunities. So thinking back to me sat in my flat, I was reducing the opportunities for transmission. My wife was actually away that week. So assuming that's when I was infectious, I would have essentially brought my personal reproduction number very close to zero. But again, there's some jobs where you can't necessarily change your interactions. Think of healthcare workers. They're going to have interactions with patients. They're going to potentially be exposed. So for this group, instead, we focus on the T. For example, they wear personal protection equipment. And so although they have those interactions, those opportunities for exposure, they're protected. And ideally, there's well potentially a zero chance of this uh, infection getting across. Now, that's a good way of looking at average transmission. Uh, I've been talking about reproduction numbers on average each case generates, say, two, two and a half more. But in reality, there's going to be variation between different individuals within a population. Some people might have more interactions, more susceptibility, um, you know, a longer duration by chance of infection. 
And so we need to, to think about uh, that variation between different individuals. And when, actually, I was, I was sat there in self-isolation, a lot of stories emerged of a British man who'd gone skiing in Haute-Savoie, who'd um, come back to the UK, sought healthcare, and it generated a lot of infections. And the media um, referred to this man as a super spreader. And there's a lot of speculation about what the story was, what his behavior, how is he responsible for these cases. And I actually gave a lot of interviews during that time, and I pointed out that this kind of narrative-driven speculation isn't particularly helpful because it creates this image that this person would have been important to the outbreak regardless of what had happened. That almost if you rewind history and play the outbreak again, there'll always be this super spreader at the center of it. But of course, this person went skiing and went to the hospital when they felt ill. These aren't particularly unusual behaviors. Um, and it, philosophers have this, this concept that they call moral luck, this idea that you can have two people behave in, in the same way, um, but one of them, for example, may be infected without realizing it, goes on to infect others, and then we blame that person for their actions, that the, these actions were somehow responsible for the outbreak, whereas someone else who'd gone around their daily routine wasn't infected, we don't blame. And I think this idea of blame is really important in, in outbreaks, because in many cases, um, we can have blame imposed on populations and, and actions attributed to something which maybe isn't as, as clear as it first appears. Uh, for example, in the, the early 80s, there was an outbreak of gonorrhea in, in Colorado Springs in the US. A number of, of writers and quite prominent journalists latched onto this outbreak, and they tried to identify what might have been driving transmission out of these things. And they looking at the data um, and sort of glancing at the cases where in the town there was a small group of individuals who were particularly um, associated with, with more transmission than others, a small group who seemed to be transmitting more. And these writers uh, said it was, about, it was a matter of opportunities, that these people were just having so many more sexual partners than, than normal. Um, that's what was driving the outbreak. It was kind of just promiscuous this underlying, perhaps, implication of irresponsible behavior, and that's what was driving what was going on in Colorado Springs. But if you look at the outbreak investigations, that story doesn't hold up. Because a lot of the investigations in Colorado Springs, for example, found that you'd have people in, uh, in wealthy communities with a lot of sexual partners wouldn't get gonorrhea. People in poor communities with very few sexual partners would. And actually, if you look at this, this outbreak investigation, um, that, that drove a lot of this speculation, the people involved in transmission didn't have particularly unusual um, sexual behaviors and relationships. A lot of them knew their partners, hadn't had that many sexual partners. And instead, what was actually driving transmission was these groups were taking too long to get treatment. They didn't have good engagement with healthcare, and it was the duration that was driving transmission, not the opportunities. And here you go from a story where the narrative is these people who are not like us, they're irresponsible sexual behaviors driving the outbreak, to you actually have communities which in many ways are like us, but for one reason or another are not engaging with, with healthcare and not getting the treatment they need quick enough to bring this thing over um, under control. And that issue of blame we see really throughout the history uh, of outbreaks. If you look back even to the 16th century, syphilis, as it spread through England, was blamed on the French. So we called it the French pox. Um, the French thought it was from Naples, so called it the Neapolitan disease. Uh, in Russia, it was Polish. Uh, in Poland, it was Turkish. And Turkey blamed it on the Christians. 
And you have this crop up again and again. In, in the last few decades, we've had it with, with HIV, with Ebola, this stigma and this, any association, whether an individual case or a community with a disease, um, creating this, this kind of otherism and pushing people away. And in many cases, it hinders the response because the people who are most at risk won't trust and won't engage with health services. And that drives outbreaks underground and makes them much harder to control. And we've seen it in the current outbreak uh, with coronavirus, that there's been really horrific and totally unjustified stigma directed at Asian communities. But as the last few days has shown, um, with outbreaks in, in the Middle East, uh, now in Europe, and I suspect over the next couple of weeks, um, more reports of transmission to, uh, to come in other areas, this is not an outbreak which is uh, centered on China exclusively anymore. It's not an outbreak that's limited to Asia. It's an outbreak that's going to affect potentially a lot of areas, and we're going to see transmission ongoing. And to tackle that, we're going to need not stigma and mistrust, but really we're going to need that trust to be in place. We're going to need people to engage with health services and collaborate, um, because ultimately to tackle this very serious outbreak we're facing, we're going to need to people to do what I did and what thousands, probably millions of people around the world are currently doing, is take sensible precautions to try and prevent transmission and ultimately try and get the reproduction number as low as we possibly can. Thank you.